With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever it is to you. Welcome in. It's officially here. The first ever episode officially of the Outkick the Culture podcast. So happy to be with you. My name is Jason Martin. I will take you through this journey every week as the Outkick kingdom finally has expanded And uh, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk TV. We're going to talk film. We're going to talk some music from time to time. We're going to have interviews with some of the biggest movers and shakers in Hollywood. It's going to be an absolute blast. Now, we came in dry today, but I put out a call on Twitter, at jmartoutkick. If you don't follow me, go ahead and do that. I put out a call, and I said, who is it that wants to do the theme for this song? Because it's all sorts of rules, and you can't use licensed music, and we don't want to go down that path. And I got some really, really cool responses from some bands that you have heard of. So hopefully we're not going to be dry for very long and we'll have some music accompaniment and some other fun things like that as we continue to move along here. Again, my name is Jason Martin. I'm the executive producer of Outkick the Coverage with your buddy Clay Travis. I'm sure you know him well. That's probably why you're listening to me. And I would be remiss if I didn't say follow him on Twitter at Clay Travis, which I'm sure that you already do. And today... We are going to have an interview, not live, but when I went to the ATX Television Festival a couple of weeks ago down in Austin and covered it for OutKick for the second straight year, I was able to sit down with Allison Bree, Betty Gilpin of Glow, and Liz Flahive, who is the creator of the show, and you will hear from them here in just a little while. But before we get into it, before we start talking pop culture, and I know that's why you're here and you want to know what we're going to do. And as we kind of move along week to week, we'll start to add more elements. You know, we'll have some special guests. I'm going to get Clay in. We're going to talk some Game of Thrones. This is going to be an absolute blast. It's a joy for me to be able to do it. But about two months into Outkick the Coverage's existence as a show, as a radio show, obviously the website's been around for several years now. And if you didn't know, you don't even have to put OutkickTheCoverage.com into your address bar anymore. Outkick.com will get you exactly where you need to be. We'll get you to the brand new home of Outkick where we have the full archive. You can find all of Clay's columns, his anonymous mailbags, his Friday mailbags, all of his uh, most interesting stuff. And, of course, you can find all of my stuff as well, all the TV coverage that I've been doing. But about two months or so, I would say, into Outkick the coverage's existence on Fox Sports Radio, Clay told his story. And it was, he spent about an hour, and he talked about, how he got where he is, where he went from AOL and Fan House to Deadspin, and how he ended up being the Clay Travis that you know and love, or maybe you don't love today, but you listen to. And then I had a lot of people that responded to me and asked me what my story was. And I've had people write me and and say, how did I get to this job? I'm not going to belabor this and spend too much time with it because I know you're not listening to hear my story, but I think it would be interesting for you to know where I come from how I got to where I am, simply so that you will understand my point of view on the things that we're going to discuss. Because one of the things about Outkick the Culture is that we're going to do things differently that many other critics, many other websites, many other review portals, all of that kind of thing, because it's all the same. 
critics will tell you there's no hive mind. And yes, there's true. There's there's very there's a lot of subjectivity out there. People can say what they want, but it does tend to follow the same rubric. It's the same paradigm over and over again. And a lot of that comes from political ideology, quite frankly. Have a lot of left-wing people in the media, a lot of far left, far liberal, even some avowed socialists out there who are trying to push for an agenda, and when a show goes for the political throat, they tend to like it. Maybe the biggest example is this year's Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, built off the Margaret Atwood uh, book that you can certainly find. And The Handmaid's Tale is a really good show, but that's where it stops for me. You will read and you will find so many articles out there talking about how this is just around the corner in an authoritarian state. And I'm sorry, I don't buy it. As fiction, The Handmaid's Tale is intriguing. But if you go further than that, I'm going to laugh you out of the building. And in ATX, I'm sitting there listening to all of these executives from these various networks. And one of them actually joked to the head of programming for Hulu, where The Handmaid's Tale is, and asked, when you submit to the Emmys, are you submitting to the drama or the documentary category? And everybody laughed and started to applaud, except for me, because it's ridiculous. And if you've watched The Handmaid's Tale, you know why. And we'll discuss The Handmaid's Tale going forward. And Elizabeth Moss, uh, Alexis Bedell, so many people doing great work on that show. But it's just a show. And I don't think enough people are actually saying that. So that's why Outkick the Culture exists. Because I'm going to cut through the crap. And I say, and I put in there, and when you downloaded this, you saw explicit content. I don't think this show is going to be dropping a ton of F-bombs, but I want the option. I want the damn option to say what I want, how I want to say it, because I think that you'll appreciate that. Now, let me tell my story, and then we're going to talk about Fargo. We're going to talk about The Leftovers. We're going to talk about Better Call Saul. We're going to talk about The Americans. We're going to talk about Veep. We're going to talk about Silicon Valley. And then you're going to hear that glow interview, and I'm going to glow, no pun intended, or I guess maybe every pun intended, uh, about that show, which released on Netflix last week. But here's my story. And uh, I hope you get something out of this. I'm 38 years old. I graduated high school in 1997 and went to NC State. Pell Grant, whole nine. Didn't go particularly well for me. I'm not going to get into it into too much detail. But I was put into a study lounge because they overbook a lot of these universities. They didn't have enough beds. There was no room for me. Me and three other guys, we all had beds that were sort of lined up in this large elongated study lounge in Sullivan Hall in Raleigh, and we waited until something opened up. Somebody dropped out or whatever it might have been. Finally, I get into a dorm, and I was put in there with some guys that had already gotten to know each other. Several of them were athletes. Almost all of them were drug addicts. Uh, They were bad guys, quite frankly, and they didn't treat me particularly well, and I, I wasn't really traveled. I wasn't really cultured in that way, so they took advantage of me and tried to do what they called toughen me up and and all these things. And I allowed it, quite frankly. And I've used it as an excuse for so long. I talk about it a lot uh, to my friends, and I always, you know, they always get angry about it when I mention it. But the truth of the matter is I could have and should have been stronger, and I allowed it to let me become complacent. So I ended up leaving NC State long before I should have. I was pre-law, which is intriguing, of course, with Clay being a lawyer, political science, all that. Ended up coming home, falling into retail, went to a community college in Asheville. I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I was born in Martinsville, Virginia, but when I was 12, I moved to Winston-Salem or right around my 13th birthday. But that's really where I remember most of my life. That's where most of my friends that I still have today 
are from. I still got some great folks in Virginia too, but went to community college in Asheville after doing retail and then ended up working in pro wrestling for 10 years. Um, kind of right place, right time situation. I could sing. Somebody said, Hey, why don't you come sing the national anthem? Didn't end up doing that, but had a conversation with the promoter that night. And then the next week he made me his ring announcer. And about four weeks later, he made me a play by play commentator. And then I started doing TV for him, syndicated TV in the state of South Carolina. I think it may have reached Georgia as well. Company still around. It's called American pro wrestling. It's a good place to cut your teeth. I guess there are some, some guys that you would know that came from there. But what pro wrestling did for me, other than me being a lifelong fan because of my grandfather and my father, is it taught me good and evil. I'm not suggesting like church teaches you good and evil. It taught me how storytelling should reflect good and evil. And it still does. And if you read any of my stuff, and if you do, first off, bless you and thank you for doing that. Uh, The reason I have an opportunity to do a show like this is because of the support and it's been overwhelming quite frankly in the lead up to this show and certainly the reactions to my to my articles and columns both in my email at uh, jmartclone at gmail.com if you want to reach me there or on twitter at jmartoutkick it really has been just special uh, because this was a dream to start writing I was writing about pro wrestling before I got into the industry I was writing editorials that really pissed everybody off because I was extremely outspoken. I still am, but I'm a little more measured today. Maybe that's going to change with this podcast and uh, being so close to Clay now. But I ticked a lot of people off, and then I got into the wrestling industry, and I decided I wasn't going to change that. And that may have been a mistake, quite frankly, because I had a voice people really liked. I had a brain a lot of people liked, but I ran my mouth too much. And I didn't have the equity yet with the various locker rooms I was in to say some of the things I was saying, to campaign for some of the things I was campaigning for, to write, certainly. I I went on insider internal message boards, spilled secrets, called out promoters, said things I shouldn't have said, angered people, and, and, you know, kind of burned some bridges that could have been key. And I've still, to this day, there are some of those bridges that remain burnt. But I worked in pro wrestling for 10 years was living in South Carolina, had some roommates, and then uh, lived with a girl. And there was a decision at one point where I said, do I marry this girl or do I leave, go finish my degree, and get my life together? And I realized at that second that if there was a decision that had to be made, if I actually had that choice to make, it was already made. Because if she was the one, if she was right for me the way that she was supposed to be right for me, there had been no choice. So I left and I went to Kentucky and I had an opportunity because of some other things to go there. Um, and because of my situation, the way I had to leave school, I was worried. I went there hoping that I'd be able to go to school, but I didn't know whether or not a school would take me. Well, Western Kentucky took me and they happened to have one of the top broadcasting schools in the country. And at that moment I felt blessed and I put down everything that I was doing, I put my head down and I grinded. I said, I'm going to get there. And I did. Uh, My GPA was through the roof. I got multiple scholarships. I was doing dual internships in 2012, one of them in Bowling Green, Kentucky, at a news talk station, the other at the most powerful sports station in Nashville and one of the most powerful sports stations in the country, 104.5 The Zone. WGFX-FM, some of my best friends in the world, both my supervisor as I'm still there, as well as some of the hosts there, remain to this day some of my best friends. 
would do anything in the world for these people. Anything. And have in certain capacities. But while I was at the zone, I met Clay Travis. And the first time I met him, the first couple of times I met him, he sort of treated me like you would expect somebody like Clay Travis when he's busy to treat somebody else that's in the building with him. Not like he was mean. He was just sort of short and he's a busy guy. And I filled in and did some producing stuff and I missed a music cue and he kind of called me out on the air and it was fine. And I was nervous and shaking and all these things because it was new and I wanted to do a good job and I really could see a future in that building. But the zone decided they were going to take a chance on me before I graduated, three or four months before I graduated college, which is, you know, it happens, but it's not necessarily something that happens a lot in media. Thing was, the opportunity that I needed them to have for me, and maybe the opportunity they wanted to have for me, was not there. So I took what I could, and to their credit, they handed me everything that they could, weekend shows, expanded Sunday wrestling show that that I began with two extremely good friends that I met through that place that are about as good a guys as you'll ever meet. And I just continued to wait, making virtually no money, just waiting for the opportunity. And it never broke. Three years passed, guys that were underneath me in college, not underneath me in skill, but younger guys, people that I mentored, people that I that I tried to help and people that really have shown me what class and professionalism look like after they graduated and just how they've comported themselves I watched them get jobs and I was still sitting there I technically had a job but I wasn't making any money everything was basically you know I thought that I would always look and and see a solar system I always would describe it this way I would look and I would see a planet out and, and I was in space somewhere just floating in that planet there was a writing job I wanted. There was a radio job I wanted. There was a TV job I wanted. There was an acting job. There was some kind of performance there. There were all these different positions just right there within my grasp, but not quite. I couldn't quite reach them. I saw where I wanted to go, but I didn't know where it was going to come from. I didn't know if it was going to come. And, you know, I prayed and I did a lot of soul searching. And there were a couple of moments where I thought I was going to leave the zone. There were a couple of minutes where I thought I was going to leave the area try to start over there were times I thought maybe the media was not for me maybe the doors just were not going to open fast forward to last summer where kind of out of nowhere this guy who I had just approached a few years before and just said you know I'm a writer sort of and I really like tv and I know you do too you don't have the time to watch a lot of it I do uh why don't you let me write about tv for you and that guy's name happened to be Clay Travis And he nodded yes, read kind of a sample column, loved it, was very impressed by it, and brought me on. And that's how my relationship with Clay Travis began. And a few years later, I get a phone call from Clay in the summer of 2016, and he tells me, you know, Fox Sports Radio and I were were talking about doing a show. And this had been discussed sort of off the books in the past. I had heard sort of rumors for a year or so, but it didn't seem like it was going to happen. He had done an NBC sports show. He had left the zone, had started doing his very his wildly popular Periscope and Facebook shows. He was having a blast and, of course, super busy with his writing and with his family and, and everybody else. And he called me and he mentioned this to me. And I was like, well, that's cool. And he's like, uh, what do you think about producing it? I was just kind of dumbfounded. I had waited so long for even a nibble that to hear this was utterly stunning. 
still is to this day when I think back about how this this played out. And I now know the story of, you know, people pitching for me. Um, but inevitably he called me and he asked me that. And I tried to play it cool. I was like, you know, I might be interested in that. Of course, I'm bouncing around on the inside because what else do I have at that moment? Except for all these little things I'm doing, play-by-play for high school in Kentucky and writing these TV columns that I'm hoping people are reading but I never know and writing some wrestling stuff for SB Nation and just sort of picking and, and moving, trying to find my way. So we continued to talk. Within about a week of that offer, all of a sudden, a job opened at 104.5 The Zone that had been something that they had wanted to give me for a long time and couldn't for various reasons. All of a sudden, it popped open. So within about a 10-day span, I got two offers. One, to potentially become the executive producer of a national sports talk morning show. The other, to go work with three of my best friends in media, three really good dudes who are as good a host as you will find in the country. And I had to make a decision. I didn't have a decision to make. How is this going to happen? Well, after talking to those three guys who desperately wanted me to take the position but told me I couldn't, said I didn't have a choice, that this was too good an opportunity for me. So all of a sudden, the prayer and all of those things went out the window. When these three guys, who I know did want my services, told me that they could not, in good conscience, allow me to turn the other thing down, then everything that was already sort of in my head crystallized, and I became the executive producer of Outkick the Coverage. And that leads me to now. I wrote about TV for a couple of years for Clay, for Outkick. That audience grew. And then... This past spring, I started thinking, you know, there are a whole lot of entertainment podcasts in the world, but just like there are a whole lot of sports radio shows in the world, there's not a damn one like Outkick the Coverage. There's not a host like Clay. There's not, in my opinion, a wide open, very freeing relationship between talent and producer the way that that Clay and I have been. What people don't know about Clay, and this is not going to be a Clay-centric podcast going forward, and I just thought that this would be an interesting way to introduce myself to those of you who don't know me as well, except for what you've heard on the radio, is that for all of the vitriol that comes towards Clay, and of course he's got a ton of fans as well, but for all the hate that he gets, for all of what people assume Clay Travis is, All that I've come to know about Clay, and I was warned by a few people that didn't want me to take that job, that thought it was going to be a huge mistake for me. All I've seen from Clay Travis is loyalty. He's done things for me I never would have expected. He's taken me places that I wouldn't have expected, especially this soon. And the other thing, and this is super important, is he's just a phenomenal father and a good husband. As often as he's away... As often as he has an opportunity to do bad things and do stupid things in his life, he seems to do the right thing almost every time. And I think it's important that everybody out there listening to this that downloaded it because the word outkick was in it, not the word culture or the words Jason Martin, know that the person that you're listening to, the person that you like, the person whose columns you've read for so many years, this Clay Travis, this alpha male guy, is just a good human being, period. 
And that leads me to episode one of Outkick the Culture, where we discuss TV and film and Hollywood and anything else that's on my mind in an unfiltered, unrestrained fashion. There will be episodes of this show that will be 30 minutes long. There will be episodes that probably will be two hours long. Today, we're going to fall somewhere in the middle of those two places because I am going to play the entire roundtable. Now, it was a few other people with me during the GLOW interview, a few other journalists, so you'll hear me ask about three or four questions during that time, but I'm going to let you hear the entire thing. It's about 20 minutes long. I think you'll enjoy it. But we're going to talk about it the way it needs to be talked about. We're going to talk about these shows, these people, these creators, these stories, and we're not going to tell them through an agenda-driven prism. We're going to tell them real. We're going to tell them genuine. We're going to tell them authentic. We're going to tell them emotional when we have to. We're going to debate. I'm going to ask you questions and challenge you, and you're going to go on Twitter, and you're going to fire off things at me, and you're going to say you completely disagree with me, and you're going to call me names, and I'm going to love it because that's what OutKick is. OutKick is about the marketplace of ideas. If you've ever listened to the radio show or read a single word that my boss has ever said or written, you know this. He believes in the marketplace of ideas. So do I. Everything will filter through that lens. I will tell you my opinion, and I'll ask you for yours. And I thank you for the time that you have put in already just to listening listening to me bloviate. This is not, you know what, it's funny about this. I've done podcasts in the past. I've done them with good friends. I've done another pop culture podcast. I've done another sports podcast when I didn't have a radio platform. I've done this kind of thing before. I have never, however, done it alone. I've never sat in a studio like I am right now with nothing but a microphone in front of me, looking to my left and seeing these audio levels popping. And that's really the only outlet that I have to know that these words are being heard. There's no audience right now when I'm talking. There will be as you're listening, and I know that. But this is a completely different experience. And you might expect that I've got tons of notes in front of me, but I don't. The other thing that you learn about radio, at least in my eyes, is it's best when it's spontaneous. Yes, I have a few bullet points. I have six lines written on a Word document, and that's all. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I've watched these shows. You've read what I've said about these shows. So I think that you know me a little bit, and you'll continue to. I'm not. This show's not about me, but for you to trust me and care what I have to say, you need to know a little bit about me, and I hope that that may have come across to you here in this last 20 minutes, and I thank you for bearing with me through that. But I've seen this stuff. You've seen this stuff. Let's talk about this stuff. This is OutKick, the culture. So let's talk and let's start right here. Four shows have ended over the last two months. Actually, not even that long. It's probably been about the last four to six weeks. These, these shows have all ended. Peak TV is a term that has come to mean there is so much good content out there on television that you can't watch it all. The critics can't watch it all. There were over, I think there were over 700 scripted series that came out in 2016. I mean, that's insane. 
I thank the networks for sending me a lot of this stuff early these days where I can screen it and have reviews ready for you fine people to read as soon as the credits roll. But quite frankly, I can't see it all. And I'll miss shows, and people will send me messages, and I'll say, hey, what do you think of this? I'll say, well, I've heard it's good, but I have no idea when I'm going to get to it. you got to pick and choose in peak TV. But four shows that came back within the same kind of scope of each other are all former and actually, I guess, current members of the OutKick Top 10 in drama for 2015 and 2016. The Leftovers, Fargo, Better Call Saul, and the Americans. Folks, these are four heavyweights. If you're not watching any of the four of them, you're probably not listening to this show, so that's probably not the case. If you're watching three of the four, got to watch the fourth. If you're watching two of the four, take some time off and catch up. These four shows are four shows that you can't afford to miss. Now, The Leftovers is done. Third season ended. It was the final season. We'll discuss the finale here in just a second. Fargo just ended its third season. It's an anthology show where each story is sort of self-contained for the most part. Noah Hawley, the creator of that show, who's also, you may also know him for Legion, the sort of Marvel X-Men show that premiered last year on FX. Noah Hawley has said that might have been the end for Fargo, that he's not going to outstay his welcome. I hope he's got another story left in him because the first three have been spectacular. Better Call Saul, maybe the most intriguing of the four. Because when it comes to Saul, everybody always sees it as the, look, if LeBron James and Michael Jordan is one comparison, then Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is a comparison on the other side. And I asked a question on Twitter last week, and I actually had some people, I knew some people were going to be pissed about it, but actually people have voted on both sides. I said three seasons into the run of both of these two shows. Which one was better, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul? And some people are like, oh, come on, man. It's Breaking Bad. It's the best show of all time. Breaking Bad ranked number two when I did my top ten a few years ago when I wrote long-form pieces on the ten shows that had meant the most to me as a viewer. And if you've missed those, maybe I'll tweet them out, but you can certainly find them in the archive at outkick.com. Breaking Bad was fabulous. The first three seasons or the first two seasons of Breaking Bad, I know people personally that have never made it past those first two seasons. Because one thing about Breaking Bad is that the pace is very measured. It's not in a hurry. Vince Gilligan is not going to just throw everything in his story at you at one time. It's going to be gradual, and it's going to be on his clock, not yours. So it's different, especially from a lot of the action shows and the week-to-week stuff that you see. Obviously, you get a CSI start to finish in 60 minutes or an NCIS or one of those procedural kind of shows. And then you have some of the longer drawn-out dramas, but a lot of them are filled with more action generally. Even stuff like 24 and uh, those kind of shows. There's constant action. In Breaking Bad, it could be three episodes before you really get to a moment, a real legitimate moment. And then that moment should then make you go back and see the emotion and the resonance in everything that you got before that point. It requires patience to watch a show like Breaking Bad. But the reward is through the roof. Now, seasons four and five, the final years of Breaking Bad, were so good and so dramatic and so intense that almost nobody with a functional brain is going to say too much negative about it. But those early years were not for everybody. I've had to try and convince people, hey, go back, keep watching. It's going to become something you're going to regret if you don't. And after you watch it, you're going to come thank me and name your firstborn child after me. Better call Saul. About two or three episodes in, once it found its footing, 
it's been spectacular. It's been great. Bob Odenkirk may be the biggest success story coming out of the entire Breaking Bad universe. Yes, Aaron Paul's become a star. We already knew what Brian Cranston was. Anna Gunn, coming from other stuff that she's done in the past. Uh, all of these kind of folks. Betsy Brandt. Obviously, Hank Schrader's character, or Hank Schrader as well. Like, there have been so many guys. Dean Norris is his name, sorry. There's been so many people that have come out of that show. But the one that just came from nowhere was Bob Odenkirk. Yes, Mr. Show. Yes, he did some news radio stuff. He did some. He's, he's, he's a great comedian. Nobody expected Bob Odenkirk to become one of the most compelling, rich, deep, and tragic figures of the century on television. And not just become that character, but pull it off as an actor. Better Call Saul performances top to bottom, if you include all of them, it's hard to argue that it is actually better than Breaking Bad. Now, you have the crossovers. If you want to include Odenkirk and Jonathan Banks on both sides, that sort of neutralizes it just a little bit. But think about some of the other people on Better Call Saul. Rhea Seahorn is absolutely fantastic as Kim Wexler. Michael McKeon may win an Emmy. Certainly needs to be nominated for Chuck McGill, who we may have seen the last of if you watched the season finale here just a few weeks ago of Better Call Saul on AMC. There are so many talented people on Better Call Saul. There are so many good cameos on Better Call Saul. The storytelling from Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan is sublime. It's very similar to Breaking Bad in its unwillingness to waver on its own clock. But if you like Breaking Bad and haven't watched Better Call Saul, I'm not even sure how you can even do that at this point. That's how good Better Call Saul is. I put in that tweet when I said which one of these two shows' first three seasons were better. I said the fact that I can even ask this question with a straight face shows you just how damn good Better Call Saul is, and it absolutely is. And it ended on a very dark, a very somber note with what appeared to be Chuck McGill's suicide. After this man came to understand that he had alienated everyone in his life and that he had no one left, that his bro- that the relationship with his brother may be irreparably damaged or maybe he didn't want it, that work, which was his entire life, was gone, that the love of his life was also gone, and then finally that the illness that was in his mind that didn't exist, that drove him nuts and forced Jimmy McGill to have to take care of him for such a long time, that he actually wasn't healthy, that he wasn't over it, that when he went to the grocery store and made that payphone call, that he was still the same Chuck McGill who was afraid of electricity, afraid of magnetism, afraid of lights, afraid of all of these things, technology. And when you come to realize that you have no one in your life and that the one thing you thought that you could conquer may indeed be unconquerable, what's left for you? It was a very, very sad ending. But season three of Better Call Saul, to me, is the second best thing I've seen on TV this year. Behind The Leftovers, which is on a completely different plane than everything else. Damon Lindelof went off Twitter as a result of 
just the hardship that came from people coming after him and Carlton Cuse following the end of Lost. Lost remains as polarizing a finale, maybe with the exception of The Sopranos. I guess maybe you could throw in some of like the dream stuff, but New Heart and St. Elsewhere, I don't think they're in the same class of show, personally. It's, it's a different, it's just different. No offense to those shows. But Lost was something that people invested a ton of time in, and they felt like they were robbed. They felt like they didn't get what they paid for. They felt like what they had put into it was not given back to them in kind. I've always thought they were idiots. When it came time to put together my Outkick Top 10, Lost was number one. It remains number one. It's probably always going to be my favorite show of all time. I will admit I think Breaking Bad is a better show, but Lost is my favorite show. For the mythology and all the things that people now hate about it because no one answered any questions. I've written this before, but I'm going to explain this to you as succinctly as possible. Lost's ending was perfect. Because when you go back and you look through the six seasons of that show, so many things occurred that made no sense. That couldn't be explained. That no scientific process or explanation were ever going to be satisfactory to anyone. If they had tried, it would have been picked apart. So you had people and fans and critics saying, well, they've written themselves into a corner with all these mysteries that they can't solve. And then they solved them all with one decision. Make it about religion. Because nothing is impossible in a world that believes in God. And it wasn't just the God of the Israelites. It wasn't just a Christian. It was all gods. It was if you believe in this force that's bigger than you, if you have that faith, anything else can be explained away simply by saying, it's God's will, it's his world, it's out of my control. So every mystery was solved with one simple answer. And I believe that much of the hatred towards the lost finale comes from, comes from people that don't like the fact that God became a central focus of Lost and didn't realize that from season one, when John Locke talked about theology and so much of this show was rooted in history and mythology and all of these different kinds of theories and thoughts, when religion became the end game for Lost, people felt cheated but I knew this was coming for years. So I was just happy with it. I was too busy crying. Yes, tears flowed down my face at the end of the Lost finale because I thought it was that good. And I wrote that in a Facebook post long before I had a column at Outkick or anywhere else. I wrote that. And what came from it was people just annihilated me and said, oh, you got this completely wrong. No, you guys got it wrong. What I'm telling you is what happened. So Damon Lindelof dealt with that, and it's tough, and Twitter can be a really nasty place. I'm sure you all know that, especially the females. So he joins Tom Parada, who wrote this book called The Leftovers, and HBO greenlights it, and it comes on the air, and the first season comes out, and it's a little slow moving at the start, and a lot of people bail out, and many of them never came back. 
The ratings weren't huge. They were pretty strong early, and then they trailed off. People didn't understand it. They weren't willing to take this journey again. I don't know if they were duped because of Lost or felt duped because of Lost or if they just had other things to do or Peak TV took over or whatever it was, but they bailed. And then season two of The Leftovers came, and it was the best thing on TV not named Fargo season two in that year. And the difference between the two was minuscule. Some people came back, and then some people would write me and write a bunch of other folks in media, friends of mine and those that I don't know that well but have followed from afar. And they say, hey, could I just watch season two and not watch season one? The answer is yes, you can. You can start the show in season two. I think you're missing out on the richness of the experience and getting to know these characters. Season one was the worst of the three, in my opinion. But that still made it one of the two best shows on TV in season one when it came time for me to actually lay those things on a sheet of paper. Season two, same way. And then comes season three. And as you're leading through season three, which was so good from start to finish this year, that nothing will touch it, that any award it wins will be deserved, any nomination it gets will be deserved, and anything that it doesn't win, I can argue, was a mistake. But it was going to be all about the ending, right? Because it's Damon Lindelof. He's a guy from Lost, right? Like, he can't screw this up. He's got to get this right. And he got it right. He and Tom Parada and Mimi Leader, and everybody else associated with that show put together an ending that even in their own description of the episode, if you actually just hit the guide button on your remote the week that it came out, said everything is answered and then nothing is answered and then it ends. And that's exactly what it was. It wasn't necessarily left open to interpretation, but if you wanted to believe that what Nora Durst was saying about her experience was a lie... You could. I chose not to because I like the ending that they put in front of me. And it seems most people did because unlike the Lost finale, overwhelmingly, the Leftovers finale received rave reviews. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to go through this series in a little bit more detail and talk more about the the stories and about all of the things that were special about this show. But suffice to say now, One of the things that I get the most on Twitter these days is recommend something for me on Netflix, recommend something for me on Amazon Prime, on Hulu, uh, what should I buy at Best Buy, what should my next binge watch be? If you have not seen The Leftovers, there's your answer. And as a matter of fact, other than the selfishness of me wanting you to finish this, I would just prefer that you stop right now and go watch The Leftovers right now and then come back in 30 hours and talk to me and listen to me because it's that good. Just as good or right there with it is The Americans. And it came to an end, and a lot of folks came to me and said this was the weakest season of the show, and I said you're right, and I wrote it as well in the season finale. The weakest season of The Americans is still a top-five show on TV, but it was the weakest season. It was the season with the least action. It was a season with a lot of family stuff. And it was coming off a season in four where you saw some major deaths, some major departures, some heavy, heavy stuff. And in Austin, the creators, Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, 
said that they needed this season to feel different than the last one, that they couldn't just repeat it, that they that's always their goal. They know that they have a final season coming up of just eight episodes, which I think plays to their benefit, quite frankly. They don't have to fill as much time. This season, some of it you could say is a time filler, but more so than anything else, they needed to set the stage for where they're going. So they did that. They changed Philip in a lot of respects and made him the sympathetic center of the show even more so than before. And they put a conflict there about whether or not he even bought into everything that he had done to that point. And his wife even started to show flashes that she didn't really buy into it, that they didn't even trust the center anymore. And then there was their daughter, Paige, who some viewers didn't care for as she became a bigger focus, but Holly Taylor has done a great job on the show. We saw a little bit more of Kedrick Salati this year, the, the son, Henry. And we saw Stan Beeman. And what we've seen from the Americans as it's grown is that we have seen Stan become a little bit more and more disillusioned with the FBI and the way things are done there and the way agents and lives sometimes are secondary to goals and protocol and bureaucracy. Feelings aren't taken into account. For example, Oleg and the blackmail. And of course, Nina and so many other things, even the even Sophia, who they're working with now. And now there's the hockey player involved and Dennis Aderholt and, and Stan trying to trying to keep that together. You've seen Stan become disillusioned with one side and you've seen Philip and Elizabeth become a little bit more and more disillusioned with Russia. Not really believing that they're doing this for the good of the people anymore. Too many people are dying. Mistakes are being made. Lives are being shattered. People see 30 years go by. They have no relationships. They have no friendships. Gabriel goes back and he looks like the saddest man in the world as he sits in his kitchen eating whatever potato it was that he cooked. And you see Martha over there and how miserable she is. This was a down season emotionally for a show that has been dread-filled from the beginning. It came to an end with... Philip and Elizabeth ready to leave, finally put this life behind them and move to Russia and say no more of this spy craft. And then finding out that because of a promotion, putting someone in the charge of the Moscow Bureau of the CIA meant that Philip could not stop what he was doing. And so he and Elizabeth are at a crossroads. And that leads us into the final season where Weisberg and Fields have made it very clear a whole lot is going to happen in a short period of time because there's a lot that they need to accomplish in a short period of time. It's not a 13-episode FX season like most. It's an eight-episode finishing salvo. So I will predict today that the Americans will go out stellar, that it will get everything right on its way out the door, and that even if you believe that this season was a down season, you will find a reason to understand the necessity of it in the end. So that's three shows. The fourth one's Fargo. It's the last one that ended, and it's the one that of the four. Well, actually, I was writing about all. I was writing about three of the four, and at one point, four of the four. I just ran out of time on Saul. I will be covering it weekly, starting with the next season, and we'll be talking about it a lot on this podcast. But Fargo, an anthology series with an amazing pedigree, when it comes to 
It takes balls. It takes sack. It takes jugs that clank to decide, yeah, I'm going to take on Joel and Ethan Cohen's baby. I'm going to take on Fargo, of all things, and I'm going to put that on TV, and I'm going to make it work. But that's what Noah Hawley's done. He's become one of the top showrunners in TV, one of the best storytellers in TV. He loves to, loves to rely on fables and allegories and illusions in his storytelling. But Fargo has gone from one great cast to another great cast to a third great cast. Season three did not start out as strong. I had one friend that said he didn't make it through the first episode because he just didn't care. And I told him, well, about 45 minutes in, you get your reason to care. Hopefully he'll go back and watch. Hopefully you guys will if you didn't. It did start out slow. It wasn't quite as good. Carrie Coon, who was Nora Durst on The Leftovers, was Gloria Burgle on Fargo. Both of those performances are Emmy-worthy. If she were to get two nominations, it would be absolutely exactly what should happen. That's how good she was in both roles. I think she was better in The Leftovers because I thought that role was a little better. But there were some similarities between the two. Fargo didn't intentionally go into season three to be a Trump allegory, but it ended up being one because a lot of it turned into alternative facts. And for the first time in the history of that show, instead of there being various shades of gray amongst the nefarious characters, there was always pure good, whether it was Molly Salverson or... Uh, Patrick Wilson in season two, or Ted Danson, or that group. This year, there was one villain and a couple of henchmen. And yes, there was Mary Elizabeth Winstead's Nikki Swango character, which was just a dynamite character to watch progress. And she was a criminal, but you rooted for her. And Wes Wrench the same way. But VM Varga was a pure villain. To the extent that Dan Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter in Austin a few weeks ago asked Noah Hawley, whether or not Donald Trump would be more likely to hire VM Varga or vice versa. And Hawley sort of laughed and said either way. But this was not about Trump, but Varga was a villain. And he was a villain that happened to spin lies and tell stories as if they were facts. And then when he was called upon it, he basically said, whoever's in power dictates what's true and what's not. Who is to say what is true? It's about, how, it's about what you can make people believe. And once you can make them believe that, you can get them to do things they otherwise would not do. Those alternative truths led to multiple deaths in a really good finale. And I would say from the back half of the season on, it really took off. Also got a great episode with Gloria spending the entire hour in Los Angeles, which was the third hour of the season. But all of this was good. All four of these shows ended around the same time. And I really didn't have too much of an issue with any of the finales. The Americans was definitely the weakest of the four. But I would also say it was the weakest of the four shows. The other three were very good. I would probably slot them leftovers, better call Saul, Fargo. Fargo has been my top show in each of the two years it's been on. This year, the leftovers was clearly number one. So you had those four shows in, guys. And then you had two comedies in this past Sunday. Silicon Valley and Veep. I know you guys watch these shows because I see the responses anytime I tweet out anything about Veep or Silicon Valley. The story coming out of Silicon Valley was less about the episode itself and more about the end of T.J. Miller and Ehrlich Bachman on the show. T.J. Miller, an actor and a stand-up comedian, mutually agreed to leave Silicon Valley and then did an exit interview in which he proceeded to take 
Uh, executive producer Alec Berg, who you may remember from Seinfeld, you wouldn't remember his name, but he was one of the key forces behind Seinfeld. And he threw Alec Berg under the bus. He's like, I didn't talk to Alec Berg because I don't like Alec Berg. Just destroyed this guy. He also took shots at Thomas Middleditch, Richard Hendricks' character on the show, while saying glowing things about Zach Woods. And I have a lot of friends that are in improv across the country. And to a man and a woman, they say Zach Woods is the best improviser on the planet. And that was exactly the quote T.J. Miller said in this interview. So T.J. Miller's leaving Silicon Valley, and Ehrlich Bachman is left overseas as Gavin Bilson found a way to get on an airplane and come back to retake Hooley from Jack Barker in the season finale of Silicon Valley. And there are those that believe the show can't survive without Ehrlich Bachman. I think that's insane. I think the show might be better without Ehrlich. I think Ehrlich was a one-trick pony who did basically the same thing over and over again. I think T.J. Miller's a funny guy, but I didn't think Ehrlich Bachman was necessary. I liked Jerry better. I liked the give and take between Dinesh and Guilfoyle better. The only person I liked Ehrlich better than is Richard Hendricks because they have taken the Richard Hendricks character and made him almost as unlikable as anybody else on TV because he's such a dumbass all the time. He's stumbling over his own feet. And that you know what? I wrote about Silicon Valley last year, and I know a lot of you read these pieces. I would do a double-up comedy review on Sunday nights of Veep and Silicon Valley. And every week, I found myself writing the same thing about Silicon. Silicon is one strategy over and over and over again. And once you see it rhythmically, it sort of takes some of the fun out of the show because you can always sense what's coming. Not directly, but you know basically what's coming. These sad sacks are going to do something brilliant, and then they're going to screw it up. They're going to fall on their faces, and just when it looks like they're dead, they're going to crawl out of the gutter, and they're going to do something else brilliant to save themselves, and then they're going to fall down again, this time a little bit harder. But they're going to pull themselves back up just as the alligator is opening its mouth to eat them alive. And they're going to do it again. And it's up and down, up and down, up and down roller coaster over and over again. And it's always going to be that way. And T.J. Miller said it in his interview. He said exactly that. He's like, I know what this show is. I don't even need to watch this show. My dad doesn't need to watch this show. Maybe there's something better out there. Silicon is a funny show with funny people, but it's not necessarily a brilliantly original idea once you've seen about two or three hours of it. I like the people more than I like watching Silicon Valley. I like watching them operate. I like watching the insults better. But when it comes to comedy, with the exception of season two of Silicon Valley, which I found better than Veep season four, no show in the history of television has more laughs per capita than Veep. The insults alone, and you can go to YouTube and find compilations of just character insults, just one character. Like, you go look up Roger Furlong on YouTube, and you'll find a six-minute compilation of nothing but his best lines. And he's not even a main character on the show. You can do this with everybody. And then in the finale, or the week before the finale, they bring Peter McNichol's Uncle Jeff character back, and he's, he's there operating with Timothy Simons, Jonah Ryan, and it's some of the funniest stuff I've seen in years. And Veep does this consistently. One of my least favorite characters on the entire show is Selena Meyer. 
And I certainly don't begrudge Julia Louis-Dreyfus and everything that she's won. But my God, she's so unlikable and she's so obnoxious and she's such an asshole. All these other people are jerks too, but for some reason I enjoy their jerkishness better than I enjoy hers. But she's a fabulous character. But you look at Ben Cafferty and Kent Davidson and Jonah Ryan, of course, Dan Egan, all of these people. Uncle Jeff, certainly. I could just keep going. Veep's cast and the way that they just execute everything is second to none. Now, will it be my favorite comedy on TV this year? Probably not, because Master of None exists. Another show that if you ask me what to binge watch, I say go to Netflix and find Aziz's show, because you have no idea what you're in for. One of the best, smartest relationship dramas, well, comedy dramas, you'll ever see. And it shows that Aziz had so much more to offer than Randy or even Tom Haverford on Parks and Rec. What he's done with Modern Romance, his his book, and what he's done with Master of None, show him to be a true renaissance man. It's incredibly impressive, so I would tell you to go watch that. But Veep crushed Silicon Valley this year, and I will argue to the death anybody that disagrees with me. Silicon wasn't even all that much fun to watch more often than not. Veep, I thought, started pretty slow. I didn't care for the first two episodes of the season at all. I was just kind of like, yeah, I mean, this is still funny, but maybe this show should have ended when she lost the election to Montez. Now I know that I was wrong about that because David Mandel and his crew that stepped in for Armando Iannucci when he left before last season have done a spectacular job and that show's absolutely awesome. And we'll do best insults and best lines and all these kinds of things as we continue to expand the show. One of the things that I have found in the preparation for doing this show is I'll be driving and I'll say, man, I could do that. Like I've got all these ideas of things uh, and, and things in my head when I watch TV and certain philosophies that I have and things like that that I want to impart on you and see what you think about them. But I also know that we have a bunch of different shows that we're going to be doing together, you and I, whether you're listening over a meal or over a drive or whatever it is. And I can't spoil it all. I've got to give it to you morsel by morsel. I've got a Vince Gilligan this thing. I can't just throw all the gunfire at you right now. We'll get to the train episode. You know, We'll get to uh, the box cutter episode. But we can't get to all of it today. We're going to talk about Glow real quickly, and then I'm going to let you hear that interview, and we're going to get out of here in this first episode of Outkick the Culture. And again, I really appreciate your time. I want your feedback. I want you to tell me what sucked and what was great. First time I've sat in front of a microphone by myself just recording something this long, so I hope you're enjoying it. Glow is what would happen if you took the best of oranges to the new black, the nostalgia of Stranger Things, And then something else that I can't really figure out. There's a third part of it that makes it glow, that makes it special. I wrote in my review a few weeks ago that glow would be this year's Stranger Things, that it would be what people would be talking about. You'd be discussing it with your boyfriends or your girlfriends or just your friends or whoever it is, that this would be a topic of discussion. This obscure comedy about 80s women's wrestling a real federation of gorgeous ladies of wrestling, David McLean created it in 1986, that I watched when I was growing up, and these women scared me because the storytelling seemed so over the top and so just, the wrong word to say is gory or gruesome. It really wasn't that. It was just something very just carnal about the whole thing. And my parents said it was trash, and they were probably right, but I still watched it. 
But this is just a show about wrestling. And I think it gets to a larger point about TV as a whole. So many of the shows that you decide that you're not going to watch because I don't like medieval or I don't like this or I'm not a fan of pirates or whatever it might be, you need to try those shows anyway. I'm not a big fan of medieval stuff at all. Sure as shit, glad I watched Game of Thrones. You know? I'm sure a lot of you out there think exactly the same way I do. Not really for you. Not into King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. You know? Not going to all of those kinds of things. But that is what would happen if you just gave it a chance. You find out it's not really about that. It's about politics and romance and betrayal and all these other things. And the acting's outrageous. And then all of a sudden there's more there. The same thing is true of many other shows that are out there. One of those shows, for example, be The Wire. Was The Wire about drugs? No. It's about corruption. It's about bureaucracy. It's about race. It's about class. All sorts of things. What about The Walking Dead? What was it about? Was it, is it really about zombies? No, it's about people. If you ever read Robert Kirkman's comic, from the very beginning, one of the original ad campaigns said, zombies don't hunt people. Zombies don't track people. It was all about people. And most zombie stories, historically, have been social commentaries. Not on the dead, but on the living. Who were the real monsters in The Walking Dead? That's the example. Was Breaking Bad about meth? No. So the same thing is true of Glow. Is it about wrestling? No. Wrestling is a backdrop, and it does provide... Some of the storytelling elements that I mentioned at the very beginning of this when I said pro wrestling taught me good and evil and taught me how to tell a good, simple story. But Glow's funny. It's well acted. You get that same kind of, you learn about all of these various women's lives the same way you do on Orange is the New Black, same way you did on Lost. I don't know how interconnected they're going to become. We have the one connection, of course, with Marin and his daughter, with Sylvia and his daughter. But there's other things that are happening there. So... We'll talk more about Glow in detail next week as we're kind of hitting the hour mark, and I just want you to hear this interview and not not take too much of your time here on this first week. But Glow absolutely should be on your list. You should be watching it right now. It's a five-and-a-half-hour binge watch. It's probably the best binge watch of the year. Easiest binge watch of the year. It's funny, but it's not constant laughs. It's smart. Everybody seems to be fleshed out very, very well. Allison Breeze, fantastic as Ruth. Betty Gilpin, real standout as Debbie. And Mark Marin doing the best work of his entire career. I don't care if you mean stand-up, WTF pod, his own show on IFC. He's never done anything as good as this. Like, this is, this is the role Mark Marin was born to play. I was so impressed with it that it was the final question that I asked the three women I had a chance to interview down in Austin at the ATX Television Festival. So, without further ado, I'm going to let you hear that entire conversation. And then, we'll close up shop. Do a little bit of house cleaning and get out of here. First edition of Outkick the Culture. All right. We're doing all right. Where, where are we at? Maybe B plus. Hope you guys are enjoying it. Here is my interview with Liz Flahive, Allison Bree, and Betty Gilpin as part of a roundtable at the ATX Television Festival a couple of weeks ago down in Austin, Texas. Enjoy. I, I was so excited that the show was happening because I have very specific memories of being like seven or eight and having like a cool babysitter who was watching the show when I shouldn't be watching it. <laughs> she was, you know, she liked like Ozzy Osbourne and like, you know, teased her hair and I was like, wow. Um, but is this a show that you 
watched growing up or had familiarity with? At all? No, or not at all. Not any of I started Googling no. it after I heard about the idea of this show. But some of my close friends in LA, uh, women, watched the show when they were kids. And when I told uh, my one good friend in particular, she was like, you have to get this job. <laughs> like, I watched it every Saturday. Yeah. You know, me and my sister, we just went crazy for it. It holds a very particular space for a lot of, I feel like it's either, it was either people's obsession for the few minutes it was on the air or a hazy memory mm-hmm. from childhood. <laughs> um, it seems like it really took hold for like 12 to 14 year old boys yeah. at the yeah. time. Yeah. Really. My husband was <laughs> yeah. boys. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I had also never seen Glow um, before uh, Carly, my co-creator and I, we came to it and we watched the documentary. Mm-hmm. We came across the documentary and we're just so blown away by the way these women were talking about it and the fact that we had never ever heard of it and then we started watching old episodes and we couldn't believe it existed. I was just gonna say, after you watch it, you're like, how did I miss this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. What was yeah. happening? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what was it about, you know, your characters, um, Ruth and Debbie, that kind of, you know, yes, you wanted to do it, um, but you know, was there something that you're like, oh, I'm so excited. Um, also, and I feel like Ruth is flawed, which we don't really see, you know, or we're seeing, trying to see more of that now. Um, and in the first episode, you know, we're kind of, I related to her in the very beginning, and then it's like, oh, wait, she's doing these bad decisions, in, but I still relate to her, so was that something that, you know, you liked? Definitely. I, you know, I love that Ruth's decisions really challenge the audience. I thought that that was very exciting. Um, I loved the writing of the show about both women, about this relationship. Um, But also this character, I I could definitely relate to her drive and her passion about what she wanted to do, but I liked that she wasn't totally wholesome. She makes bad decisions, uh, you know, even with the best of intentions at times. Uh, I like the idea of playing a person who is struggling and even I like the idea of her as a character, you you know, you're just struggling to, to win the audience back over the way that she is struggling to be liked by this group of women that she's now working with. I find that to be very interesting. I also really just like the push and pull of her own confidence is something that I could really relate to. You know, Ruth is a person who obviously has a pretty big balls. Um, you know, in the first scene, we see her reading the man's part in this audition. Like, she's got a lot of gumption, which I appreciate. But at the same time, she can feel totally invisible. I think that's why this indiscretion happens, is that she she does have this desire to feel special, you know, and and I, I can relate to that push and pull, you know, as an actor where you have to have this giant amount of confidence in, in, in any job that you go into to be like, I know I'm inhabiting this role and I have a purpose, it's important that I'm here inhabiting it, and at the same time you're filled with self-doubt, and between any job you wonder if you'll work again, and even during shooting some things, you're wondering, you know, if if you're making the right choices. I think the desperation of, you know, of a character is really interesting. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think the idea of, like, a desperate person trying to find their way Mm -hmm. in a place where desperation is not really accepted. Yeah. And so, you know, and what if the thing that you dream to do is not the thing you end up getting? a chance to do, in fact, like, you get taken down this whole other road, mm-hmm. you know, just watching people, and just watching humans try, mm-hmm. it's always, always interesting. <laughs> yeah, we sort of see 
all 14 of the women are at the end of their rope in their own specific way and mm -hmm. find wrestling when they're at that very vulnerable place. Um, I agree with Ali. I connected to Debbie uh, for some of the same reasons. Like, I think that there's a big difference between self-confidence and self-worth. And, um, you know, I've played a lot of sort of Barbie-esque characters who uh, like what they see in the mirror and walk into a room thinking, I've entered the room and I think I'm fantastic. And I don't, I certainly don't feel that. And um, I, I think a lot of women who we think feel that way don't feel that way. Um, and to play with the uh, sort of feeling of, okay, if you can have confidence and at the same time um, uh, think that you deserve less than you do, um, yeah, I think that's a very interesting thing to play with. Thank you. And Liz, you work together all now. No spanking. So I can't want, sorry, no spanking. No spanking. So was this a case of this when you were writing uh, the character of Betty that you always had Betty in mind? Or was this a case of Betty kind of grassing you saying, you've got to write me uh, a role That's in the next question. question. <laughs> I don't to hear the answer to this. No, I mean, I think, you know, there are actors you all, you, when you work with them, you hold on to them in your brains. Like, I think we always hoped there would be a place, a perfect place for Betty on this show. But I think, honestly, with these roles, I mean, if we would have been more efficient had we written it with everybody in mind. But... It's, it's not really how we developed the characters. We just sort of wrote the script and tried to figure out like, who we needed. And then, you know, like we had a list of people we've never seen before and a list of people that we wanted to bring in and try to find spaces for. But I think, you know, it was, it was a little bit of both. And then once we, once we got everybody in place, I think we started shaping the characters to the people. Because I think that's just naturally what happens. And I think that's naturally how we work. Was not on any of those lists, but I whistled my way in. <laughs> they couldn't deny it. It's true. <laughs> I'm stunned this show's happening. Like, <laughs> in the best possible way. I worked in pro like, wrestling for 10 feel, years. Yes. So like, I, I, worked in, I worked in the industry for a decade oh, damn. Uh, right. before I decided to get serious and do something else. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's very interesting that it comes at a time where women's stories are being told on TV. Um, you've got, well, Wonder Woman obviously is blowing up, but Orange is the New Black just hit with another new season. Genji, yeah. of course, is associated with your show. Yeah. Sweet Vicious all of these kind of shows doing things for women. How does GLOW fit into telling women's stories? Because it's not really about wrestling. It's about the characters, just like The Walking Dead. It's not about zombies, and The Wire was not just about heroin. Like, yeah. what exactly is GLOW in terms of a goal and a mission statement? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I hope it sort of speaks for itself, honestly. Like, I think that you can, you can, you can probably watch it in a bunch of different ways. I think it. I think it has a lot of depth that you can, if you want to drop into it, you'll get. I think there's, you know, sheer entertainment, the sheer value. entertainment value of just watching these women come together and seeing if they can actually achieve the thing that they set out to achieve. Um, but I don't know. For me, it is. It's really about watching these real women connect with each other because mm -hmm. I think if that's not there, then you know, then it's just flash. And I think it's like if it's flash and no substance, like that's just. Right. Interesting. So I think it's just being able to... At the same time, I feel like you can smell an agenda, you know, and maybe if Liz and Carly had set out to just, like, make a feminist show, the show would be something really different. But isn't it interesting 
how if you have really amazing source material, the stories, you know, and, and compelling writing, then the stories are something you want to watch. It's not about if it's about women or men. You know, Glow is such a cool, interesting source is such cool, interesting source material that it's not like it's got a lot of women on it how do we make it men sort of like let's just tell this story of this thing that's so cool and weird and bizarre and people will respond to it I hope yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about the uh, the physical part of it uh, how fun was all the stunts moves learning everything all uh, like <laughs> mm. I mean I think that was in terms of if there ever was an agenda for the show I think it was creating a show that had a really serious physical component which I think is something you don't get to see with women um, definitely and it's in a film too I think it just like wanted to be a very physical show about bodies about different types of bodies and mm-hmm. seeing seeing that really happen it's something screen. that excited me sorry no, uh, <laughs> no. more than like so much about the show was the physical component of the show and I'm a really physical person though had never considered myself athletic until shooting this show um, but I really had the desire to work on something really physical and I think that women are constantly underestimated in that arena um, so that made it exciting and fun and we all it was very empowering the training we trained for you know, about four and a half weeks before we started shooting, we continued training while we shot the whole series um, with Chavo Guerrero, uh, who's an incredible pro wrestler, comes from a line of wrestlers. His uncle, Mondo, trained the original cast of Glow. Uh-huh. So that's a fun piece of trivia. <laughs> uh, and it, it was, it, you know, the show is about these women, these sort of outcasts making their own way and realizing how much they're capable of and I think we were all sort of going through the same thing as we were learning to wrestle and realizing what we could do once we broke our own limitations we had set in our own minds you know once you just said well I'm doing this now I got this job I have to do it I want to do it um I'm gonna run at it and it it, it was so empowering and and bonded but and confidence building to just kind of walk around and think, you don't know what I'm capable of. Yeah. <laughs> Did you use any any stunt doubles? Oh, I thought you were gonna say it was like any performance enhancing drugs. Yes, we did. We had, well, Shauna Duggins was our stunt coordinator for the whole show and also uh, Betty's double and Helena Barrett was my stunt double. And they were our two main doubles for that. We probably do a bit, most more of the wrestling than any other women on the show. So we had two doubles that were there with us all day, every day. But it was really important to Betty and I, and I think to Liz and Harley as well, that um, all the women on the show, that we were capable of doing every move you see on the show, save one move in the first episode, the monkey flip. Um, But we could do it all. We did it all. We had our stunt doubles there to tag in when we needed a break and we were exhausted and the shot was a million miles away and you couldn't see anyone's faces. And been shooting for eight hours. Yes. <laughs> it, so they, they, I mean, but they were incredible and incredibly supportive of us doing the moves and checking in with, incredibly aware of our safety. Um, and also Shauna and Helena both worked with Chavo uh, in choreographing our fights and working to our strengths. So as they learned more about our bodies through the training, they really tailored our matches to our our bodies and our characters. 
Because yeah. as, as, as amazing as Chavo is with everything, wrestling, he doesn't have boobs or a vagina. So like, it's, just, it's just a thing that has to be, you know, sometimes factored in or acknowledged. And Yeah, definitely. But there were moves yeah. where Chavo would be like, you're going to do this. And I'd be like, can you see how I can't do that? <laughs> and you hurt me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what was it like for the two of you whenever you got to be in the ring together doing some of those crazy things with each other? I just have to say that I think that Betty and I have incredible in-ring chemistry. <laughs> I think in-ring and out-of-ring out chemistry. Yeah. Thank you, I agree. <laughs> um, yes. We do have a deep love and appreciation of each other, which I think helps. But in the ring, I, there's something about, I think, we were so deeply connected to our characters and... I don't know. I feel like we have very complementary attitudes and body types and things like that where we just fit together. It was totally exhilarating yeah. to be in the ring and also to feel like I trust this person with my life more yes. than anything and let's work together. I want to just support you and lift you up and then slam you down. <laughs> <laughs> I think both Betty and Debbie really appreciated the... Um, the opportunity to wrestle with Allison and Ruth. I was, um, you know, I was scared to film Glow for many reasons. Uh, as an actor, as a wrestler, I was just, it was a very scary, intimidating experience. And to have everyday physical contact with my scene partner, um, where it felt like powerful swimming together, um, like guiding each other's bodies to the ground, um, you know, I felt my body talking and listening for the first time in my life to another female body in a powerful way, um, and uh, it, it was it was the best sort of it sort of held my hand through the process of glow and made me able to be a powerful person. And I also think character wise, you know, Ruth and Debbie are going through this um, crazy fissure in their friendship. Uh, that could kill their friendship um, and to be sort of quote-unquote forced to be together to wrestle um, in the most intimate way when they can't even make eye contact but they have their hands on each other uh, I think helps them survive what they're going through. Alison, do you feel like you're on the verge of a moment here and you've got glow coming out, little hours in a few weeks just ask the artist and now you've just been casting the scene still with me. So how does, is this going to be one of those years where... I, well, you're going to be. <laughs> I guess I'm having a moment. I'm having a moment. We, I have to admit it. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I, I, I definitely am so excited about the work that I've been able to do currently. Um, it has been an incredible year, and you know, mostly I think I'm just so grateful and like surprised <laughs> that it went that way. You know, there, you know, as much as you work between jobs, you always doubt if you'll work again or be able to work on good stuff or, or anything like that. And um, I'm, I'm just grateful for these these opportunities. I, I think the glow in itself feels like its own moment. And, you know, we're under two weeks from the show coming out. It just feels like this, this tidal wave of, like, support and excitement and emotion. I'm really looking forward to the world seeing this show. And, yeah, it's been a good year. 
you guys gush about Mark Marin for a bit because yeah. Sam, the Sam Sylvia character is so important to everything that's going on, and Mark just seems tailor made for that part. Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, he was. He sort of hit it out of the park the minute we saw his tape. He just, you know, we did not. Um, we didn't run after him. We didn't think of him for the part. We didn't think of him writing the part. Time just seems crazy because it just seems like it's all naturally coming out of his right. mouth. Um, but yeah, I mean, he. The thing that's so surprised was so surprising for me, at least, about Mark, because you knew he was funny, you knew he was cranky, you knew he was smart. Um, but I didn't know like the depths to which he could go and yeah. just how straight he would play every single scene and was line perfect, letter perfect on every episode. It was it, it was amazing. He and he re, and to watch him navigate a set with fourteen women yeah. was also personally was really thrilling. hilarious. There's a, a scene in the second episode where he comes to convince Debbie to yep. be a part of Glow. And I remember doing that scene with him uh, and it being my first scene, scene with him, I yeah. guess. And um, when I say, okay, I'll come, he does this thing where he goes, yes! <laughs> and it wasn't a bit, it wasn't a like button on the scene. It was like his whole body and being was like, she's coming with me! <laughs> Mark Marin is here to fucking play. Yeah. Like, he is doing this for real. Like, I had this preconceived notion that, like, oh, this stand-up comic is gonna come in and, like, roll his eyes through this and, like, do bits and talk out of the side of his mouth and then go back to his trailer. He is 100% committed to playing this character of Sam Sylvia and does it so beautifully. Mark is also incredibly self-aware, so I think he was really ready to tap into the parts of the character that he could relate to, even stuff that he's worked for many years to avoid in his life, you know, but that this guy is right in the midst of, he was able to dive right into that. And he's also deeply vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I think that he was really open and... um, gentle with the women on the show. I think that I was the most surprised by his gentleness and uh, supportive nature toward all of us throughout filming, which is really exciting. And I think Ruth is sort of a perfect foil to <laughs> this character, Sam Sylvia, that he's playing. And I, and I just loved watching our friendship develop throughout the season. So there you have it. That was Allison Bree, Betty Gilpin, and Liz Flahiva, the creator of Glow, and the two stars, Debbie and Ruth. Really cool to sit down with them. That show was awesome. Again, if you have not seen it, you need to see it. We're going to go in depth on it in coming weeks. That's one thing about today's show. Today was more of an introduction. We kind of talked broadly about television. We're going to talk very, very specifically in most episodes going forward. We're also going to talk about larger themes because one of the things about my writing that I that I think a lot of people do like is that I try to boil down an episode to one theme, to one overarching point, and even a series or a season of things. And I feel like that we need to do that, maybe first, before you delve into the specifics. The specifics can inform upon the larger point. So I think that's what we're going to do. Real quickly before I get out of here. Movies. A lot of people have asked me about movie reviews. There'll be a Spider-Man Homecoming review on OutKick next week. Of course, Clay's going to be in Europe, so a lot of the content that's going to be on the website, I think, is going to be coming from me over the next few weeks, which is going to be cool. But 
Spider-Man Homecoming was the first Spider-Man film that I have seen that felt like a Spider-Man film. Like, Spider-Man 2 is a great movie, and I enjoyed the first one. The third one was complete shit. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man, the first one, I enjoyed it maybe more so than most. The second one, not particularly very good. Tom Holland does a really nice job. Uh, The only critique I would have about his, not really his performance, but the way the character is written is he's almost too much of a numbskull. He's almost too much of a kid. A little bit too young, making some mistakes. But this is an origin story without an origin. He doesn't get bitten by a spider, folks. Like, he's Spider-Man from the very beginning. I think that the opening of the film is extremely clever. Uh, You're going to want to stay to the very end of the credits because it's worth your time. Not because of some large mythology thing, but just because of something I think you're going to enjoy. So I think you should definitely stick around for it. My quick review, B, B B-minus, somewhere in there. Solid movie, entertaining movie, fast-paced. I saw uh, Michael Compton, who's a critic up in Kentucky, a friend of mine, say that it's basically a Marvel movie mixed with a John Hughes comedy. And I think that's pretty adept, quite frankly. Um, There is some teenage stuff going on in this thing. There's a good little sidekick character, a friend to Peter Parker. The way that the female situation is handled is interesting, to say the least. It's different. Michael Keaton does a great job in his role. It's worth seeing, quite frankly. You're going to like it. You're going to laugh a lot more than you have in a Spider-Man movie. You're not going to leave without a smile on your face. This is not a brooding Spider-Man. This is kind of what you want. It's not as good as Wonder Woman, but it's definitely worthy of your time this summer. Also worthy of your time is Baby Driver, which to me is my favorite movie of the year. Is it the best movie of the year? I don't know. Those two things are different. I said that about Lost and Breaking Bad a little bit earlier. Breaking Bad, I think, is the best made television show I've ever seen, with all due respect to Mad Men and The Sopranos and The Wire and and all those great Friday Night Lights and things like that. But Lost has always got a special place in my heart. It just, it, it hit the right chords for me. That is Baby Driver. Baby Driver's an Edgar Wright film. You know Edgar Wright from Shaun of the Dead, from Hot Fuzz, from World's End, which I think is vastly underrated. Uh, this film's great. Absolutely great. It's fun. It's original. It takes the use of music and actually makes music a character in the film. Great chemistry between the leads. Everybody plays their role well. Spacey is Spacey. John Hamm does a really nice job. John Bernthal, who's really starting to show up in a lot of different things, he does a really good job. Obviously, the leads are fantastic. If there's only if there's one thing negative I have to say about Baby Driver, if you had if you've had a chance to see it already, it's that in the last thirty minutes it goes a little bit too far over the top. I don't need John Hamm to become what John Hamm becomes in the last thirty minutes, but I think that the last five minutes are pitch perfect. Uh, I actually had a debate with a couple of critics, with a couple of other critics who did not like that it didn't end on the bridge or on the road. I disagreed. I like the happy ending. I guess I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. But really, really great. You should see it. You'll like it if you're going with a date or if you're going just with your boys or whatever it is. Definitely worth the time. And the third film, Despicable Me 3, your parents out there, if you're curious, it's more of the same. It's basically the same movie you've already watched twice. If you like those characters, you'll still like them. They do add a new, they add a brother to Gru named Drew, and I think he's used too much. I think they rely on him too much. They should have relied more on Trey Parker, who plays the villain in the film, and he's the best part of the entire movie. But there's still a lot of laughs here. One thing I will say is there's a little bit more adult in theme than the other two. There's a few sexual jokes that are clearly meant to go over the heads of kids and go directly to the parents. There are There's a couple of risque things here that you maybe wouldn't be expecting. 
but I think it all works. Like if I'd, I'd give it like a C somewhere in there, it was totally average. I think it was better than Cars because Cars was pretty average. Next week I'll go into detail about how Clay was wrong about his thoughts on how the end of Cars should have gone because I think he is entirely wrong, but I'm not going to let this get any longer. All right, there it is. So there's your movie reviews. We'll talk more about Baby Driver. We'll talk a lot more about Spider-Man Homecoming after more of you have had a chance to see it. Just don't want to spoil it for you. That'll be one goal here. We're going to have to spoil a lot because we're going to be talking about things that we've seen, but when I've screened something that's not out to the mass public, I'm not going to come on here and ruin that for you. I hope that you appreciate that. Also, hope that you appreciate this show. If you do, by all means, please tell people, rate it, review it, let them know what you think. Let me know what you think. At Jmart Outkick is where you can find me. You can also email me at jmartclone at gmail.com. Really appreciate you guys taking the time. I hope you have a wonderful holiday weekend. We will be back next week. We'll get into the specifics of some shows that you care about. And yes, one thing I have not done at any point since I've been writing for Outkick, except occasional tweets, is talk about Game of Thrones. Because that's Clay's wheelhouse. And it's going to remain his wheelhouse. He'll be writing his column coming up. But I'll be able to talk about it my way on this show. And we'll have the man himself on here to discuss it as well when he gets back from Europe. You guys have a great fourth. Have a great weekend with you and yours. We will see you right back here next week for Outkick to Culture. Thanks to Clay for making it possible for when I pitched this to him. He immediately said, it's a great idea. It's a no-brainer, 100%. If you're a sponsor out there, I would love to take your money. Whoever you are, I would be glad to to do that. All the folks that have sent me messages wanting to be a part of this show, wanting to do something with it, I don't know how that would look right now, but believe me, all of it is not being thrown into a wastebasket, and if I haven't said anything to you, it is not uh, for lack of care, I guess is the short way to put it. And thanks to Caleb Tyler as well. He's the one who put together my logo, has followed kind of through with what I wanted him to do, which was to build off the existing OutKick logo and just create something that was more specific to what I wanted to do. And the vision I had, he was able to pull off easily. He gave me multiple colors, ways that I can use this. So he did a fantastic job, and I really appreciate that. Again, appreciate all you guys. Have a great weekend. I'm Jason Martin. See ya! Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.